This talk was given by Gokhan Bonabakar at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gokhan is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order and coordinator for the National Buddhist Prison Sangha. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. This is from Shantideva on mindfulness, or as this translation has it, vigilant introspection. He says, those who wish to keep the trainings must with perfect self-possession guard their minds. Without this guard upon the mind, the trainings cannot be preserved. Wandering where it will, the elephant of mind will bring us down to torment in the hell of unrelenting pain. No worldly beast, however wild and crazed, could bring upon us such calamities. If with mindfulness is rope, the elephant of mind is tethered all around, our fears will come to nothing, every virtue drop into our hands. Tigers, lions, elephants and bears, snakes and every hostile foe, those who guard the prisoners in hell, ghosts and ghouls and every evil wraith, by simple binding of this mind alone, all these things are likewise bound. By simple taming of this mind alone, all these things are likewise tamed. I feel like Shantideva is always a good place to start. He is um, so passionate. He doesn't want us to miss what he's offering. And Zazen is always a good place to start. The importance of training the mind. Untrained, it runs amok. Imagine the elephant, that it, the, the damage that an elephant could do. But train it, tame it. It's a whole different story. And so we see this in our own mind, maybe particularly during Sashin, the power of our mind, the power it has, the suffering we experience in our mind. Pema Chodron offers a little bit of a less dramatic version in commenting on this. She says, if our mind remains untamed and distracted, we will have constant emotional upheavals and our anger and addictions will get stronger. But the question is, how do we train the mind? How do we, what does this mean? In Zazen, what does this mean? We're cultivating concentration, can be continually deepening and exploring what that is. I think we really, we have to find for ourselves what that is. I was remembering Daidaroshi talking about concentration. He would, this was one of his lines. He would say over and over again, saying that the concentration is the ability to put your mind where you want it, when you want it there, for as long as you want it there. And I was always a little intimidated by that um, because it didn't seem like I could do that despite my best efforts, my best intentions, I would get distracted. 
and still do. It seems that mind concentration is not a static thing, in my experience. And there is concentration, deepening, developing, and such an emphasis in the teaching on the importance of this, of developing concentration, so that we can see more clearly, see past the anger, the addictions, the emotional upheaval. And with practice, we do see the mind, the mind can settle. We can develop concentration. And so concentration, um, concentration is, is the ability to focus the mind, right? To bring our attention to one thing, often the breath and zazen. And shikantaza, which has mostly been my practice, it's not, the concentration isn't on an object. The practice is, is just awareness, but there's still concentration. Concentration, I'd say, is in the awareness. And I think we're, we are continually developing concentration, learning what that is, developing jariki, as well as mindfulness and awareness. And I found recently a, just a clear sort of distinction of these three terms so the mindfulness is, is what keeps the mind from wandering away. This is the tether that Shantideva talks about. So we drift over there, nope, come back. We drift over there, nope, come back. Thought arises, let it go, start over again, come back. This is the remembering to come back. Remembering that we're concentrating. And awareness is what detects that the mind has become distracted. Thought arises, notice it, see it. That's awareness. We have to be aware of that. This is seeing our mind, noticing that our concentration has shifted, that I've gotten involved with a thought. We have to notice this so that we can come back, concentrate. We need all three of these qualities. Thrangu Rinpoche says, the most important thing in meditation is to learn how to concentrate and how to relax. He says, if we tighten the mind too much in concentration, it freaks out. He says, this is like locking a cat in a room. But if you open the door, maybe open the windows too, then the cat settles down, lies down, goes to sleep. Suzuki Roshi talks about a cow or a sheep, that the best way to control it is to give it a spacious meadow. Then it will calm down. 
But of course, this doesn't mean that we're just letting our thoughts run. When I first started doing Shikantaza, um, and Dada Roshi sh- shifted me um, to Shikantaza because I, I had gotten so sort of bound up and tangled and tight in, in a more con- sort of focused concentration practice. And then I started doing Shikantaza and it was like I was either just falling asleep or I was running, 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 thinking, thinking, thinking. I had to learn again how to concentrate, what that meant, how to settle my mind. So again, what, for ourself, for yourself, what is it to concentrate, to settle the mind, to train the mind? And always important part of this for me is how do I work with my thoughts, all of the thoughts and emotions and reactions that I experience, that arise? What are they? How should I relate to them? And from the beginning, hopefully, we're given some instruction that we're not trying to stop our thoughts. That the goal is not to not have any more emotions, not to be calm all the time. But we all kind of think that that's what we're supposed to be doing. It might be unconscious, not visible to us, But when I get upset, I'm it's like, why, why am I getting upset again? Why do I still get upset like that? Why does he still get upset like that? Recently, Shugan Roshi said something to me that was really helpful. Um, it was just saying that when, when something appears, so we see an object, we smell something, taste something, touch something, that our, our reaction to it, our attraction or our aversion is not voluntary. It's not voluntary. He was saying, this is, you know, he sort of explained to me, this is the Buddhist understanding of mind. Our reaction is conditioned and habitual, is our karmic conditioning. But it's not something that we choose to do. And I kind of, as I, that sort of settled in, I was like, it was, it's like, I know this, thank you. And, and it's so helpful, kind of radical. Because, because it feels like I think that I should be able to not react, to not get upset, to not get attracted, to have that desire. And it keeps happening. And part of why I feel like I, sh- I shouldn't do that is because I also see over time with practice that there are things that I don't react to in the same way, that I don't get upset about anymore.
And so we don't need to get upset with ourselves for getting upset or for really wanting another cookie, (laughs) for having any desire or aversion. We can't stop that from arising. And getting upset about it isn't helpful. But I'm still responsible. And so seeing that desire or that anger arise, then there, that's where I can do something. Where I can take responsibility. And where I can let go, loosen, when there's that flare of anger that comes through my body. I can't stop that from happening, but as soon as I notice it, then I can do something. Then I can loosen that. And study it. So not only work to loosen that, to let go, to not feed it, to not act on it, but to be... Just to look at it, to be interested in what's happening, right? It's kind of like fascinating when like these things come, come through, right? What is it? And as we shift our reaction, it's like shifting our reaction to our reaction, our response to our response that that's where things loosen. We don't get so caught. And with practice that we see how we don't get so upset about particular things that we used to get upset about. We don't have the same reaction because we've loosened that. I came across a similar teaching um, or sort of along the same lines in a, um, um, from a Tibetan teacher who was saying that sitting in stillness, so the mind is still, we have, we have found some stillness, stability. And then involuntarily, thoughts arise. Where did they come from? Why can't I stop that? But he was explaining very simply, thoughts arise involuntarily from our storehouse consciousness, just so, as I understand, that's just deep in our mind where we can't see it. But in the same way, what was so helpful to me is is just that acknowledgement saying it's not it's involuntary they arise involuntarily so I don't have to get upset that they're arising I don't need to fight with them or fight with myself for having them it's just part of what happens in the mind and again once the thought has arisen then I can work with it study it look into its nature, 
let it go, not feed it, not feed my perception that it is inherently existent and real. And again, with practice, with time, with effort, that loosens. So we can be gentle with ourselves, fully accepting, as Shugen Roshi said this morning, and practice diligently. They're not in conflict. And it's important how we practice because we're training our mind. So what are we training our mind in? What are we deepening? I was remembering, and I think I told some, someone about this recently. Um, many years ago, I hurt my, my eye, and I spent a, um, spent a night in the emergency room, and um, I guess I was in pain. I was like, you know, puking into every trash can that I passed. And um, towards the end of the night, sort of, I was, it was all over, and I was... Um, um, sitting and realized that I had sort of like turned in to myself and was like not really in pain, not really like feeling that. And, and I realized that this is, I had learned how to do that in Sishin because I used to be in so much pain in Sishin. And I just like in that, you know, in that, even in that state, I was like, uh-oh, like that's not really what I want to be training myself to do, to like numb what I'm feeling. So it's good to be clear and kind of aware of what is it that we think we should be cultivating in Zazen. What do we think it's going to do for us? What do, you th- what do we think enlightenment is going to do for us? Is it going to be the end? Do we think it's going to be the end of feelings, emotions, difficulty, that we'll be able to control our mind and our reactions, never have doubts? Because if that's what we think, that's probably what we're subtly doing, trying to do. Do we think that when we finally have that big enlightenment experience, that that's going to put all of our doubts to rest? Kind of explode everything and leave this bright, shiny me? Mind always clear. I just remember reading a story about Suzuki Roshi. Someone was asking him about, interviewing him, asking him about enlightenment experiences and sort of the importance of enlightenment experiences. And he was saying, they're not, they're not that important. It's not really what practice is about. And I guess his wife was sitting next to him and she 
leaned forward and she said, that's because he hasn't had any. (laughs) (laughs) The um, monastics for the last um, quite a few months have been um, studying Nagarjuna. Um, And I know some of you um, in Zoom land have been done some work with, with this with Shugan as well. And um, Nagarjuna is a, a um, Madhyamaka philosopher. Um, he's very, his writing, is, as the writing that we have that's come down to, is, is, is quite terse and dry and philosophical. Um, he has a very, he takes a very systematic philosophical approach, logical approach, to showing that there's no such thing as inherent existence. Nothing exists from its own side independently. He says that. He sort of like hammers away at that. But we perceive things to be real, to have inherent existence. We impute that existence onto them. And there's been some frustration with these texts, um, with sort of the, the... philosophical presentation and in some cases with a commentary that feels like it's not grounded in experience. I think most of us at times have felt like, well, this isn't really very Zen, right? How do we bring this into our practice? So I've been looking at this, how, how we bring this really important teaching How is this helping us to look at it? And so just briefly, and so his his approach is is to disprove each of the philosophical schools of his time that seem to have been proponents, they, were, they actually hold up inherent existence in their philosophy. But really what he's trying to do is point to our, our own philosophical school, help us to see how we hold to these, this belief that we all reify reality, that when we see an object, the classic example is a chariot, right? So that when we see a chariot, we impute this chariotness in on it, right? But then when you start to analyze it, where, where is that chariot? And of course, then we have a relationship with it once we've imputed that essence onto it. And with some analysis with, you know, we can see this, right? That's not true, right? There's, you can't actually find what is it that is the chariot, right? And with some practice and understanding of the teachings, we can see, well, the, how then our attachment becomes, leads to suffering, right? We get attached to these objects, to our chariot. We think it's a very nice chariot, so we 
get attached to it. We can see if we loosen that up, that will loosen suffering, lessen suffering. And it's also really hard to see what we're actually doing. To see that we actually think that it is real, it is exists in this inherent way. In one of our discussions, I was saying, yeah, okay, so we all reify reality, but like, I'm not committed to inherent existence. Shugan just kind of gave me this look and said, oh yeah. And so I've been trying to look at that, right? How do I, how do I reify? And how is it that I think all of these different things that I'm coming into contact with have inherent existence? And sometimes I can see, I feel like I can see that, right? And that there's, that, that distra- there's a, a certain kind of distraction that helps that to happen. It's like I'm distracted from the reification, from what I'm doing, from the attaching and how mindfulness does something to that, loosens that. And so I've been thinking about this, reflecting on this, and another helpful, found another helpful teaching from, from Thrangu Rinpoche. He says, when mindfulness wanders just slightly, very subtle thoughts arise. When mindfulness wanders greatly, Gross thoughts arise, meaning large thoughts, thoughts apprehending and assenting to the appearance of things as if they were inherently established. When mindfulness wanders greatly, thoughts arise that are apprehending and assenting to the appearance of things as if they were inherently established. So when we get caught up in thoughts, I was trying to see this during the period before the talk when my heart was pounding. I'm like, what is, like, where is the assenting and apprehending this as inherently existent? When we get up and caught up in thoughts, as I understand what I understand him to saying, he's saying it's because we are seeing them as if they had inherent existence. Or the things that we are having thoughts about, maybe both, we're seeing them as having inherent existence. So much of the teaching is pointing to this belief, this deluded view, this reifying of reality. And all these different forms of practice that were offered are to help us see that, see through that, see things as they are. As I was thinking about 
this talk, I was just appreciating how Zazen um, allows a different way of using my mind, of being in my mind, in my body, mind, self, not figuring things out, not thought, not believing in thought, And thinking about how really this is what all of practice is offering. Hard practice, body practice, liturgy, work practice. To be in our experience, in our body-mind, in our relationship with things in a different way. Each of these different sort of aspects of practice asking us, offering us. How do we enter here, drop in here, drop below? Drop below what I'm imputing onto this. enter what is below thought. How do we learn to trust this larger self, this wholeness? How would we not be afraid of emotion, of thought, states of mind, whether they're difficult or pleasant? Trusting that something deeper we can be less afraid to feel fully, to experience what does arise, to face our karma. In our discussions about um, spiritual bypassing, just been thinking about wanting practice to solve everything, to be the solution to everything. And I guess thinking that I see that in others also, I think maybe this is a common hope that when someone is enlightened, They won't make mistakes, won't disappoint people. We won't fall into our societal conditioning. And seeing in myself, I think seeing in others, then when I see that that's not the case, I doubt. I feel doubt. I've been seeing in the midst of this pandemic 
just noticing how I feel doubt. When I feel doubt, what am I doing? Is this still important? Feeling such grief for the world. For all the suffering seems so that it's just, there's always so much suffering, but it's so clear. Seeing my worry about the future for us, for all of us. What will our future be? Worried about particular people that I love, people who are sick. I'm worried about how so many of us are, I mean, we're all isolated. We're just isolated here in a different way, but people who are isolated and how are we going to come out of that? What are the effects of that going to be? The trauma so many of us are going to carry. And so just noticing my sort of glimmers of doubt. I don't doubt much. I've never doubted, doubted much. I don't doubt Sazen. And in watching that, it's also wondering, is this doubt? Or is this relaxing something? Is this loosening something? And it made me think of times when I've been most hurt, disappointed. How those have actually been times when I've learned that the true ground is still under my feet. I've learned to trust that more deeply. That that's not dependent, doesn't come and go with my, the circumstances of my life. times when I've been most disappointed by my teachers. I've actually been clarifying times, realizing that the Dharma doesn't depend on them, my practice doesn't depend on them. That what I knew to be true in my own body from my own experience was still true, was not dependent When my heart has been broken, what was most important to me seemed in question, realizing that at the very same time I was okay. I was okay. I was still standing. And I've been I was thinking, you know, how this pandemic is a, is a different thing, it's a new thing never experienced something like this before. It's not personal in the way that those other hurts have been personal for me. I 
and I'm not sure yet whether it's clarifying for me. But I know things still need taken care of. What was true is still true. And I've been amazed by spring this year. How um, kind of quietly exciting it is. Watching life poke out in its little ways, gentle. Gentle. smelling smells that haven't been there since last year. The turtles are back out on their logs some days. I've been kind of falling in love with rocks. I dig them up in the orchard. And I've been taking some of the larger ones and carrying them around, putting them in piles. Seeing a radiance in them that I haven't seen before. I hope that they're happy when I put them together. But I'm not sure what it is that makes a rock flourish. I think they're flourishing down in the dark, in the clay. And also when they've been washed clean by the rain, sitting on the new grass. And I've been spending more time with trees. They're not worried. They're not worried about the future. The big wise ones in the forest. I think they must know that something's happening. The weather's changing. They must be talking to each other. But they're not worried. They're not confused. And I talk to them, to the big ones and to the younger ones in the orchard. I give them encouragement. I think they appreciate that, can hear me in their way. I like to touch the big ones put my palms on their trunk, my cheek, lean in. We lean into each other. Without doing a thing, they console me.
Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.